Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up, stormwater and wastewater competing for space in a crowded city sewer system. We'll hear from an advocate about making room. Once these plans are completed in 10 to 20 years' time, they will still leave a lot of raw sewage going under our waterways every year. And if sea levels do rise in the face of climate change and the storms do intensify, we're going to have more overflows and we won't have yet addressed the problem. Now is the time on 112BK when we talk about poop, again, yours, mine, every New Yorker's, and where it goes. Because of a flaw in the older sewer system that serves much of the city, billions of gallons of untreated sewage flow into the city's rivers, creeks, bays, and canals every year. That makes those waters unhealthy for swimming, fishing, or sometimes even touching, which violates the Clean Water Act, which New York City has been under pressure for decades to address. The city has spent billions of dollars on upgrades and has made some progress in places like Brooklyn's Newtown Creek, Gowanus Canal, and Pattergate Basin. But we're entering a critical new phase of this work, and advocates want a bigger role for the public in the next part of the cleanup plan. Here to help us wade through this, get it, is Julie Welch, Program Manager for the Swim Coalition. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. So let's talk about why we're here. Combined sewer overflows, CSOs, what is this problem? Where does it come from? CSOs are one of the major pollutants that still contaminate our waterways today, and that's the combined sewer system, which overflows when it rains. And the system is inundated by sewage that comes from our homes, buildings, offices, and from the stormwater that runs through the streets. They it all goes to the same pipe, right. which normally works okay, but when right. there's a lot of rain, it's too much for the plants system to, to take. The system is inundated, and at that time, uh, the city has two choices. They can either let it go out into the waterways, which has traditionally been the practice across the world. That's been the system that we've all inherited, or let it back up. We certainly don't want it backing up <laughs> into our homes. So it's released into the waterways where it is not treated, and we then have contaminants that uh, cause the waters to be unsafe to touch, as you said, at times, especially after a heavy rain. How common is this among other big U.S. cities? Do, do most of them have a similar system? Yes, yes. Combined sewer systems were the norm, and releasing sewage directly into our waterways was the practice at a certain point in history, and now we've inherited that system and are evolving beyond it, certainly, and looking at other ways to deal with our wastewater. That is what DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, does now for the city of New York. Let's talk about what impact the overflows have on the waterways. So they release this sewage. It contains everything that's in sewage. And that does what exactly? It causes low oxygen in the waterways, which impacts the ecosystem and all the habitats that live within the waterway, but it also makes it unsafe to fish in, certainly to wade into and to swim into. And the sources are stormwater and this combined sewer overflow. And so stormwater is contaminated by fuel and all of the things that it picks up along the way on the streets. And as we said, the sewage is contaminated with our waste. And so these waterways are places, especially the smaller tributaries around the city, where people are fishing for their food, for their dinner. And the, the fish can be contaminated, for one thing, and that causes a health problem. In some cases, they're fishing and selling the fish to restaurants. Do you know if people have gotten sick from that? You do see folks fishing in places where 
you might not fish. Um, right. Do we know if people have gotten sick? Yes, there have been instances that have been reported, and the city has now made a great effort to get a signage out uh, along these areas where they know people are typically fishing. Uh, some, we've talked to fishermen in the past around Coney Island and other places and said, are you aware of this and what's happening? And they are. They haven't gotten sick yet, so they're not quite right. <laughs> fully going to stop their practice. But. And the signs say, don't fish or don't eat too much of the fish. What's the don't fish, don't fish and, period? And don't swim, especially right after a rainstorm. Now, fishable and swimmable are the goals that are associated with the Federal Clean Water Act passed during the 70s. Right. And are those the realistic goals for our city waterways? They are a certain set of criteria that we would like to meet, that the Federal Clean Water Act says every city needs to meet. They are achievable. Over time, we can get there. Uh, we have to have policies in place, and we have to have infrastructure in place in order to be able to accomplish those goals. But yes, I think it is. And in fact, New York City has done a great job in meeting that criteria in the recreational season uh, in some waters, in the larger waterways. It's really the smaller tributaries that we need to address at this point. And how has the city accomplished what it's done thus far? I think by upgrading the antiquated system that they have inherited and capturing, trying to capture more of the combined sewer overflow through green infrastructure, which captures the stormwater runoff before it gets into the system and thereby lessens the impact on it. Green infrastructure in the public right-of-way is what they've implemented so far, and those are in the form of rain gardens. Sometimes they're called bioswales, which capture the stormwater and hold it for a period of time and allow it to infiltrate back into groundwater system and or slowly trickle into the sewer system. Right. If you slow things down enough, then the treatment plants have enough time to catch up and mm -hmm. process it normally. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your organization, the Swim Coalition. How, who, sure. is, who is in that and what do you guys, uh, what do, you guys do? We're a group of 70-plus organizations who advocate for clean waterways around New York City, fishable, swimmable waterways around New York City. SWIM stands for Stormwater Infrastructure Matters. We evolved out of a citizens' advisory committee that was convened by DEP in approximately 2004 to inform the precursor to the CSO long-term control plans that we're talking about today, which were the water, water body watershed plans as well as the CSO consent order, which is a legally binding agreement between the city and the state. So they convened this group of civic activists and professionals to inform the water body watershed plans as well as the consent order. And then when the milestones for that committee were met, the group that had been meeting over the course of the last couple of years from 2004 to mid-2006 decided that they wanted to continue to meet and talk about some of the other issues that were on hand, especially stormwater management, sustainable stormwater management. So they continued to meet and ultimately formed the coalition. Why is this your issue? How did you come to it? Well, <laughs> my husband is a kite surfer, and he <laughs> kite surfed in Jamaica Bay one day after a rain and came home with quite a terrible infection on his face and oh, body wow. from being exposed to that. And so I said, what in the world is going on over there? <laughs> I began to research the issue, and we determined that there are CSOs in our waterways that we have to be aware of, and certainly after a rain, be careful about. So you mentioned Jamaica Bay. That's one of the 11 individual yes. waterways yes. that the city 
as part of this consent order with the state, which mm-hmm. is the enforcer of the federal laws, said mm-hmm. you got to clean them up. Mm-hmm. I believe 10 of those plans have been approved, one still being approved by the state. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the approach the city has mapped out in those individual plans? Is it sound? Is it sufficient? One of the things that we've been worried about with all of the plans so far is the criteria upon which the plans are based. The water quality criteria that they are using is an outdated methodology. There's a newer, more stringent criteria that we would like to have seen those plans be based on. And we've been advocating for the state to adopt the better criteria. EPA has asked the state to do so. They haven't yet adopted it. So all of these 10 plans are based on what we believe to be not reliable water quality criteria. So that's one thing. Each of the plans is very complex, and and the city has taken great care to really look deeply into each of the waterways and their intricate systems to to try and capture as much CSO volume as they can in most cases. We would, of course, like to see them capture more volume. And also, in three instances of those 10 plans that have been approved, they're proposing disinfection of this combined sewer overflow. Injecting chlorine and then trying to take the chlorine out, Right. right? Rather than capturing the volume. And we're very concerned about that methodology. In our minds, it's still untested, and we haven't actually tested it in real time in those waterways to see how it's going to impact those systems. And so we're very worried about that. We've been in great and productive conversations with DEP about that, and we hope that in the phase after they've designed the disinfection facilities, they'll start to test carefully and monitor what the amounts are of chlorine that they're going to use. We'd rather they didn't do it at all and to find other solutions, but those are concerns. So two of the Brooklyn waterways that are affected, uh, Newtown and Gowanus, obviously they also have Superfund activity Mm -hmm. there. It's a complex issue, but we hear that Gowanus is is getting cleaner. Uh, Is Mm -hmm. that because of efforts to reduce CSOs, and what more is planned for, for those water bodies? It's um, the Superfund has been cleaning up the the legacy toxins that are in Gowanus, so it is getting cleaner from that standpoint. The proposed implementation for cleaning up CSOs in Gowanus was originally in the long-term control plan that was recently approved to install two tanks that would hold stormwater for a time so that it didn't go into the system and inundate it. But recently we learned, in fact, I think in the last couple of weeks, that DEP has started to rethink that and is suggesting uh, the use of a tunnel to hold and capture the water rather than these two tanks. Tunnels, they say, take up less space and are expandable over time to, to deal with greater volumes of wastewater as, as development happens in the area. We're still learning about the pros and cons of the tunnels versus the tanks and are going to talk carefully with DEP about that. The tunnels are being proposed for Flushing Bay, Newtown Creek, and another waterway, which I can't remember right now. But we want to make sure that that's the best approach because they presented and we all agreed, okay, we're going to go with the tanks for Gowanus. So the stakeholders in Gowanus, I think, are going to learn more about that at an upcoming meeting with EPA and DEP. I mean, either way, it sounds like a a big project, right? Whether you're building huge tanks or an underground tunnel, it's a lot of digging, a lot of of expense and some, some big impact there. Yes. So you mentioned volume, and I'm curious. You have the city's population growing, obviously mm-hmm. some development in these particular areas. Mm-hmm. People are using less water. We also have climate 
change occurring. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, when you look at the impacts of all those different trends, do we think we'll be seeing more pressure on the system in coming years? What do you think the, mm -hmm. the future looks like? I think we can count on more intense storms and more frequent storms that will cause this inundation of the system and potentially even flooding in some of these lower-lying areas. And in these intense storms, we have this, you know, a, a, what they call a cloudburst, basically, just an inundation of rainfall into the system that is going to definitely put pressure on it. And also, it knocks the power out. And when the power gets knocked out, the wastewater treatment plants, uh, the gates don't work anymore. They, they're, right, I think during Sandy, there mm -hmm. was an event where some massive amount was released because mm -hmm. of a power failure mm -hmm. at one of the plants. Mm -hmm. So we have that to consider, too. And so... I know that DEP is assessing each and every one of the wastewater treatment plants, plants all along the waterway, of course, for their resilience in the face of these more stringent and, and um, intense storms. So they're looking at it. I think there's a lot we need to do in the next couple of decades to get ready. So, yeah, what, what do you think is not being addressed that we need to get prepared for? What should we be worrying about? I think this notion that the 10 plans that have been approved so far are going to solve the problem is a little bit wishful thinking because they're not capturing all of the CSO volume. Once these plans are completed in 10 to 20 years' time, they will still leave a lot of raw sewage going into our waterways every year. And if sea levels do rise in the face of climate change and the storms do intensify, we're going to have more overflows and we won't have yet addressed the problem. So it needs to be multi-pronged, which they are now taking that approach. Certainly green infrastructure needs to be scaled up a lot over the next two decades. I think there are great opportunities for green infrastructure to help in this regard. So I guess with such a huge uh, issue, and, and we'll talk in a second about the citywide LTCP, but what can individual users of water do? I mean, there are folks who don't flush or wash during mm -hmm. rainstorms. Mm -hmm. um, is that uh, something that makes a difference? Are there ways yes. that we should be monitoring our own usage, what do you suggest? Yes, definitely. I think that's one way that individuals in their home can look outside, see that it's raining, and decide not to do 26 loads of laundry that day because that will inundate the system if all of us are doing laundry on a rainy day. Uh, there are some pilot programs in neighborhoods near waterways where folks are not showering or certainly shortening their showers, not doing laundry, not running the dishwasher during a heavy rain. And the city is studying the impact of that. Mm -hmm. And if we then scaled that up and everybody was aware, okay, it's a rainy day, we have to wait 24 hours before we use a lot of water, that will make a difference. And that's something certainly that individuals can easily do at home. I think we're going to have to look at really large scale green infrastructure and gray infrastructure projects going forward to really fully address the problem. So speaking of scale, the big to-do item on the DEPs and the city's list when it comes to these projects is this citywide long-term control plan. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about individual waterways from Bronx River to Gowanus Canal, mm -hmm. and in between, this would be covering the whole waterway that connects all the city together, the thread that pulls New York City together. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for in that plan? And in particular, what role do you want the public to have in shaping it? Yes, the citywide open waters plan is going to impact every borough in New York City. Uh, it's going to be a plan that addresses the New York Harbor, the East River, the Harlem River, the Hudson River, Arthur Kill, Kill Van Cull, and the western portion of Long Island Sound. So it's a very complex 
plan. The city has twice requested an extension on the delivery of the plan because it is so complex and there's so much intricate work that they have to do. They're underway with it now. And what we really want to see in terms of the role of the public in this plan is an opportunity to look at the final draft before they send it to the state for review. The final draft of that proposed plan should be presented to the public and we should have an opportunity to comment on it and then the city respond to our comments before it goes to the state. That's our big ask, if you will, of that plan. We didn't get the opportunity to see the final draft of any of the other 10 plans. We were asking for it all along and Late last year at a city council public hearing, the city was asked, why have you not provided these drafts, these final drafts for the public review? And they said, well, we don't have a good answer. And uh, the city council said, well, how about if you do it for the plans going forward, which would have been Jamaica Bay and then this citywide plan. And they said they would. And I think we're going to make some progress in that regard in getting to see the draft, at least chapters of it, before it goes to the state. Because the city, we are the feet on the ground. We are in these waterways and next to them all the time. And we can provide vital information to the city about the state of the waterways that they're making plans for. Yeah, I was at a meeting once where someone explained to DEP that a place where they were thinking of doing an outlet is where there's an experimental oyster mm -hmm. project. So those mm -hmm. are the kind of things the public can, can right. provide. Right. Talk about the other part of the system, just very briefly. CSOs are part of the problem mm -hmm. that pollutes, but right. stormwater, as you mentioned, is, is right. big too. And the city has a new plan for dealing with yes. that. Is that, a, that. That's also a very ambitious uh, plan. Do you think it will be effective? Yes, yes, I do. That is the bigger, that is a big part of the equation. For the pollution in the waterways, it comes from the combined sewer system, and it comes also from the municipal separate storm sewer system. Which or is MS4, MS4. By, for people in the know. And they have just developed a stormwater management plan for that system. It's robust. The public uh, input was robust also. We were very happy with the public process for that plan. And it's going to address a lot of the industrial and commercial sites along the shoreline and near the waterways and the, um, make sure that those sites are really shoring up what they're doing to manage stormwater and lessen the amount of polluted stormwater that goes directly into the water. Because it rains and it sweeps whatever kind of chemicals they're working with right, right in. off into the waterway, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we, we, that program is going to be great. And when the two programs finally meet, the CSO long-term control plans and the stormwater management plans come together and merge as a holistic approach, we'll make great progress in addressing the matter. But even still, there's more to do over the next few decades. Just quickly, we've been talking at this point about ways that we all kind of passively contribute to this problem. Mm -hmm. Are there active contributors? Are there still people who deliberately pollute the waterways, dump stuff down drains? Is that a significant part of the issue? That is another category that contributes to the overall pollution in the waterways. Sometimes it's called illegal discharge or illicit discharge. And sometimes it's purposeful and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's inadvertent. And so the, there can be, for instance, in the example of the Beach Haven complex over in Coney Island, they had their wastewater system connected to the wrong pipes. And so untreated sewage was going directly into Coney Island Creek from that complex for over a pretty long period of time because someone had flipped a cap the wrong way. and 
the untreated sewage was going directly into the waterway wow. through the municipal system pipes. There are instances like that. They're hard to track down, but they have they are tracking them. They do have a system for it, and there are indicators in a waterway that something like that is happening. Sometimes construction sites inadvertently deposit something into the waterways that shouldn't be there. And this is, again, where citizens on the ground see these things and can report it, and it can be addressed. Report by calling 311? And DEP. DEP is going to have a number on their website soon that people can call directly. Julie Welch, Program Manager at the SWIM Coalition, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And if you're interested in participating in the formation of that long-term citywide plan Julie talked about, you can attend the Long-Term Control Plan meeting Wednesday, December 5th at 6.30 p.m. Runs to 8.30 p.m. at the CUNY School of Law, 2 Court Square West in Queens. New York City often brags about its champagne of tap water. The tasty stuff is credited for our great pizza crust and bagels. And truly, we're lucky to have an abundant resource that makes its way to us from the Delaware watershed in the Catskills and the Croton Reservoir upstate. And really, most Americans have been blessed with water on demand. Just turn on the tap and voila. But in recent years, this luxury has become just that, especially in some parched parts of the world, areas around the country, and even in our own backyard. So what's the deal with water security and who's feeling the strain? That's today's issue on the table. Let's set the scene. You're a 20-something parent of two, it's 5.30 in the morning, and your alarm goes off. Before the kids can eat breakfast and get ready for school, you and your partner have to haul out a few buckets and take a walk to a sanctioned water distribution checkpoint. You are given 13 gallons for your entire day, and it's up to you to ration it. If this reality sounds all too familiar, you were probably living in Cape Town last year, when the South African metropolis underwent the realest metro water shortage the world has ever seen. By a razor-thin margin, Cape Town was able to avoid day zero, when you'd get half of those 13 gallons, thanks to significant international aid. But two-thirds of the world's population currently lives in areas that experience water scarcity for at least one month out of the year. Can you handle more scary stats? With the existing climate change scenario, by 2030, water scarcity in some arid and semi-arid places will displace between 24 million and 700 million people. That's quite a range, but the optimistic end is still really bad. There will be about 1 billion more mouths to feed worldwide by 2025, and global agriculture alone will require another 1 trillion cubic meters of water per year, equal to the annual flow of 20 Niles or 100 Colorado rivers. Now, before you start hoarding the good stuff, let's be crystal clear. There is not yet a global water shortage, but individual countries and regions need to urgently tackle these critical problems presented by water stress. Shortage or no, people in NYCHA housing have been vocal in demanding answers after several buildings experienced water shutoffs all last weekend, with no warning or explanation. And we know from experience, it's subsidized housing in underserved communities who are going to be our canary in the coal mine as this issue starts rearing its head in New York. So what are some folks doing about it? At the very least, folks at WeTap, a crowdsourcing mapping app, are making sure that potable water is available to everyone. WeTap makes public water fountains easy to find. In New York City alone, we have nearly 3,100 of them and helps people add new ones to the public database. Valuing tap water, both the quality and access, is an important step toward ensuring our water remains safe, tasty, and protected. 
That's the show for today. Mackenzie Fagan will be back tomorrow with a great show in store. Hope you can tune in. This episode of 112BK is hosted by me, Jarrett Murphy. The show is written and series produced by Ross Tuttle. Fred Brown is senior producer. Shereen Bargi is our digital journalist. And Isabel Alcantara is the associate producer. It was recorded in studio by Eric Haugeseg, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. Naeem Van is the production assistant. The show is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Alexander Pointsolo is our post-production supervisor. And Emily Bogosian is our post-producer. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.